So good morning and happy new year. My name is Jesse. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. Or not Trinity. This is a noble grace, isn't it? Just a little throw, personal throwback there. If you're new here, we are so glad that you're here at Indelible Grace. Um, and it's the new year, right? How exciting. How exciting. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was took my son on a hike of one of our beautiful East Bay parks. And as we drove into the hills, a thick fog settled in. So we couldn't really see anything. You, you know how this is, right? This is the Bay Area, right? At points, we could only see 15 steps ahead. And you know those scenic overlooks in which you get to see everything? We labored up this steep climb up to this scenic overlook, only to look over and realize we couldn't see anything. The fog had just set in. At one point, I saw this sign in the fog 20 feet away. It said, danger, steep cliff. Barely could see it. It was beautiful and disorienting. It would have been scary, maybe even dangerous, but for two reasons. First, I had a map, which gave me a bird's eye view of the park. But even more helpful was the path. I could coordinate the path with the map to see where we were and where we were going. I still did not know what to expect. I didn't know where this, I'd never been here, I had no idea what to expect, but I knew where I was going because of the path. Have you ever been there in life? The fog has rolled in and you don't know where you are. Maybe you're at a fork in the road and you don't know which path is the right one, which goes where you want to be. And you feel the pressure of choosing the right path. Maybe it's a job to take, what person to date or marry, or what should you do with your child? How do you parent them? Or maybe it's, do we have a child or another child? Or maybe it's the even bigger question of like, where am I going in life? Where is this leading me? Wouldn't it be nice to have a map of life like the East Bay Parks provides? Or those signs that say, don't go this way? Well, what are the reigning metaphors of this book of the Bible called Proverbs that we're going to go through is actually a path. There is a path that leads to life, to success, to joy. And Proverbs lays out that path, the way of wisdom. And Proverbs is also a map of sorts. It's a bird's eye view of life. So you can see the danger and the dead ends. What Proverbs seeks to do is to equip us with the wisdom to navigate life. We're in a new year where we naturally reflect on the past and make resolutions for the future. And what we need to do that well is wisdom. Wisdom to know ourselves, wisdom to know our families, our friends, our coworkers. And so the next six weeks, we're going to study the map of wisdom that is Proverbs. These first two to three weeks, we'll look at the first principles of wisdom. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are all about becoming a person who can be wise. It's about the character of wisdom that requires 
And then we'll apply Proverbs in these last couple weeks to several topics. So today we're going to look at the first section of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 1. You can also look on your bulletin. Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. Verse 20, so you'll walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God that loves to speak to us. And we pray that we would be a people that love to hear you. And not only to hear you, but to store up, to treasure up your commandments and your wisdom and your insight, O oh Lord. We ask you would give us nothing less than wisdom this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to look this morning at the purpose of wisdom, the premise of wisdom, the prizing of wisdom, and the preservation of wisdom. The purpose of wisdom, the premise of wisdom, the prizing, and the preservation. So first... The purpose of wisdom. The purpose of Proverbs is actually right up front. Look at verse 2. He says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. If we could think of Proverbs, we could think of it as an education. It's an instruction. Those are the words it uses to describe what is happening. Proverbs is a master class on life itself. And its scope is self-consciously ambitious. Look at verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Those are just fancy ways of saying how to do what is right, how to live the way that's right, and how to relate and live fairly. 
One Bible translator translates this, this as a, a manual for living. That's what Proverbs is. Now, who is it for? Look at verse 4. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now, that youth, that word youth, is broad, and it can refer to toddlers or teenagers or 20-somethings. It's anyone that's on the cusp of maturity. It's a manual for living for those who need to know how to live. Now, Solomon uses several synonyms, right? Instruction, prudence, knowledge. That word knowledge, I think, can be deceiving. Because we in our society often equate information with power. But knowledge is not merely information. Let me illustrate. Mount Everest is the highest peak in the world. It's 29,032 feet above sea level. In fact, you can memorize a whole lot of facts about Mount Everest. But those facts are going to do little for you if you actually want to climb Everest. Mountaineering is an excellent metaphor for wisdom. If you are going to climb Everest, those facts would do little to prepare you for the travail that would take. You would need to go into discipline training, taking classes, hiking smaller peaks to get your body in condition to understand what it takes to hike mountains of this capacity. You'd need to learn from more experienced Climbers. And none of that is abstract information. You can't just learn that in a classroom. It's honing your instincts and intuitions, training your body in the right reflexes. Wisdom is an active and applied knowledge that becomes our second nature. That's your only hope for surviving Everest. And to conquer Everest, you need to understand the world of Everest, the conditions, the dangers. There's one-third of the oxygen at the summit than at normal sea level. That can be lethal. Avalanches, wind, freezing temperatures. You need to understand the world. And the purpose of wisdom is similarly to navigate our world, the threats and dangers. Wisdom presupposes a world that's gone wrong. There are wrong paths everywhere. And Proverbs has this paradoxical eye. It sees the true goodness in the world. It delights in the joys of faithful marital sex, the cool drink of an encouraging word, the delight of friendship. It sees beauty in the world. But at the same time, it sees the dangers of this world. We live in the upside down in Stranger Things, this world that's coming to get us. And wisdom takes account of both. So you need to understand the world. But to summit Everest, probably more importantly, you also need to know yourself. Wisdom is self-knowledge. And not only self-knowledge, but controlling yourself. Look at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. In scripture, wisdom has royal associations. Which makes sense. Who needs wisdom? Someone who's ruling everything. The larger your domain, the more wisdom you need. You feel this in your jobs, right? Those of you who manage people, you need wisdom. 
Because you have large families, you need wisdom. The larger your family, the more wisdom you need. You might know the story of Solomon. After he becomes king, the Lord comes to him and says, I'm going to give you whatever you ask. And Solomon says, give me an understanding mind to be able to govern your people. In other words, Solomon responds with humility, acknowledging that he needs help to be a good king. And then he writes Proverbs to make us kings and queens. He's instructing us in the wisdom of governing. How do we rule? But Proverbs is going to tell us pretty quickly that the most important domain is ourselves. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. He who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. Wisdom begins with ruling yourself. And secular wisdom actually agrees. Legendary Visa CEO D. Hawk famously divided up leadership. He says, actually, 40% of leadership is self-leadership. Leading yourself. Focus on that. Not leading your those who are under you, but leading yourself. Because if you take care of that, the other will come naturally. Now, I have to warn you, as we go into Proverbs, Proverbs are, it might feel patronizing, dogmatic, or maybe even too authoritative, like very black and white. I've, uh, I've mentioned uh, the psychologist Barry Schwartz before. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he writes about how we live in a culture of where there's more cultural, political, and economic freedom to be whoever and do whatever you want than ever before. In other words, we really don't like people telling us what to do. We really don't like people telling us like how to live. But that's what Proverbs does. It, it is a wisdom about life. There's an authority for it. And I actually think our culture is starved for this. I remember a couple of years ago, the media made a big deal about the millions of young men who were buying Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And in this 12, 12 Rules for Life, Peterson's just very authoritative. This is how you should live. And people are hungry for that. They're hungry for someone to tell them what the meaning of life is and how to navigate it. We live in a culture defiantly agnostic about the meaning of life, which makes wisdom impossible. Because wisdom is living in line with life's meaning. So Proverbs is going to teach us how we should live. And the purpose of wisdom is to instruct us, to make us mature, to make us kings and queens, able to rule ourselves in line with life's meaning. So that's the purpose of wisdom. Now, where does wisdom begin? That leads us to our second point, the premise of wisdom. We move from purpose to premise in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. That is the premise of Proverbs, and it's gonna, it's easily misunderstood, so let me unpack it here. You might say, wait, 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 wait. Isn't God loving? Why am I supposed to fear Him? Isn't He good? Gentle? Aren't these images of fear and love opposed to each other? The simple answer is no. Actually, in Deuteronomy, which is Israel's constitution, its covenant. God gives the law, and then in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, What does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, 
to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and to keep all his commandments, which I am commanding you today for your good. God says, what I want from you is to fear me and to love me. There are two sides of the same coin. And this is not fear in the sense of watching some horror movie, like you're scared. It's, it's respect. It's reverence. One of the most prominent biblical metaphors for God is that he is a mountain. He's a mountain. He's higher than us. I think that's helpful for us to understand this fear of the Lord. Ed Viesters is uh, the first American climber to ascend all of the world's 14 8,000-meter peaks. He's been to the top of all of them. And he has this advice. He says, listen to the mountain. The mountain has been there for millions of years. I need to continually remind myself that I'm just a visiting guest. I need to respect the mountain. It tells me whether I get to climb. I don't get to decide. The higher the mountain, the more respect and reverence required. So fear of the Lord is, is kind of like that. Right? You're dealing with something that is so beyond you, so above you. It's, it's revering the Lord's supremacy and superiority to us. This is the Lord who made the mountains. He is utterly different than us. And the fear of the Lord can't just be this abstract thing of like, well, I believe in God, right? It has to get personal. It has to be you revering God. You realizing that you are not your own. That you are made for God. That there is a God who made you that you have to do business with. Reckon with him. Surrender yourself to him. That's the fear of the Lord. And when you begin to do that, that is wisdom. You begin to realize just how little your agency is in this life. How much you owe God. That is the fear of the Lord that begins wisdom. To fear a mountain means a climber must take it on their own, on its own terms, not their own. Some paths are unhikable, and you need to stick to the path. And the fear of the Lord, likewise, takes God's creation on his terms. It stays on the path, which is to obey his commandments. That passage I read you from Deuteronomy 10, it says, Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and keep his commandments, which are for your good. Our culture says that all paths are equally good. That there is no creative intent. And we should only be limited by our creative potential as humans. That's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Gender, sexuality... Justice, equity. There are very clear paths that God gives us in Scripture. This is wisdom. This is life. Walk in this. And when we stay on his paths, it means safety, health, and flourishing. And when we obscure the boundaries of the path, we lose the path. It's dangerous. When you destroy the boundaries of the path, Actually, the whole terrain becomes a path, which is definitionally not a path. You can have no assurance that you're getting anywhere, and you might very well walk off a cliff. It's trendy to doubt it, but there is a givenness to creation. There's a givenness to our world, because God gave it. And wisdom is understanding that givenness and acting accordingly. 
Proverbs design, describes God's design for the world. Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and keep his commandments, which are for your good. If the premise of wisdom is fearing the Lord, the premise in back of that is the faith to recognize that God knows better than you. That God knows better than you and wants good for you. He wants good for you. I think one of the best ways to describe the fear of the Lord, and C.S. Lewis, you, you, you know this probably, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children about Aslan, the Christ figure who's this great lion. And they learn, that the children learn that there's this lion. And Susan asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the fear of the Lord. The Lord is someone altogether more strange and powerful than we can ever imagine. He is not to be trifled upon or presumed upon. But he is good. So terrifyingly good that we cannot fathom how pure and good he truly is. And how much he wants to make us pure and good in his image. That... Because the premise of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Now, in chapter 2, we move from the purpose and the premise of wisdom to the prizing and the preservation of wisdom. So that leads us to our third point, the prizing of wisdom. Wisdom is not passive. You can't just like mindlessly go through life and say, make me wise. You have to... Pursue and prize wisdom. And that's what the Father says in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you. Or verse 4. If you seek for wisdom like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. Solomon uses this metaphor of treasure and mining. Mine for wisdom. It's hidden. You have to find it. Prize it. And when you prize something, you pursue it. Now, to pursue and prize wisdom, you must know two things. First, you must know that you need wisdom. That's the paradox of wisdom. It is the wise who know they need wisdom. Fools don't think they need wisdom because they think they're already wise. So, friends, do you think you need wisdom? Your answer to that tells you, are you a wise or a person or a fool. In fact, Proverbs is not just for the young. In verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The wise have the wisdom to know that they always need to grow in wisdom. Humility is the precondition for wisdom. Contrary to the mantra of the day, wisdom does not come from within. Proverbs actually classes those who listen to their own hearts As fools. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your ear to understanding. That's very important that the ear is the organ of wisdom. Why? Because the ear is passive. It's receptive. It comes from outside yourself. So friends, are you pursuing wisdom? Do you know you need wisdom? 
Are you listening to God and to others with humility? So you need, you, you need to know you need wisdom. And the second thing you need is you need to know its true value. He says, seek it like silver. And later on, Proverbs is going to say it's more valuable than silver or gold. We'll get back to that in just a second. That's going to be our fourth point. But how do we pursue and prize wisdom? I want to get very practical. Our text tells us there's three sources for wisdom. First, look at verse 2. Receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you. What he's saying there is put God's word inside of you. Solomon is the one who designed and built the temple. And inside the inner sanctuary of this temple, he put the word of God, this treasure. That was the heart, the core of the temple. And he's using the same language for us. He's saying, you be like the temple. You put God's word in your sanctuary, in your heart of hearts. Be a holy temple. And they would read the scriptures every day in the temple. So here's a really super practical suggestion if you want to grow in wisdom. Read Proverbs every day. The 31 chapters, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs. It's well suited for reading a chapter each day for a month. A seasoned pastor taught me to add on a chapter of Proverbs in my daily reading. And reading on and meditating on this has changed me. For instance, in my past, I never withheld my words. If I thought or felt it, I said it. You can ask my wife. I was authentic to a fault. And I was a really big jerk. A really big jerk. People, my words destroyed people. And they distrusted me because of it. Proverbs has a word for that kind of person. It's a fool. A fool. Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I've learned that wisdom is not a verbal processor. It is careful about what to say, when to say, and who to say it to. So, God's word, the Proverbs, is a place for wisdom. But also, a second place, source of wisdom, is prayer. We pray for wisdom. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Scripture will not tell you many things that you want to know about your life. It's not going to tell you about what school to put your kids in, about what job to take, about where to invest your money. You need wisdom for such decisions. But rather than worry about it, what Scripture does call us to do is to pray for all these things. To pray for these things. Rather than worry about it. James 1.5 says that God is generous with his wisdom. It says if you pray and ask God for wisdom about something, He will, and you believe it, God's going to answer you. It's a mark of humility and wisdom that you pray more for wisdom about more things. Even the little things. Little things like a a meeting, a conversation that you feel anxious about. The more and more that you distrust yourself, the wiser you actually become. When we ask God for wisdom, he answers us. He answers us. 
So we go to God's word, we are praying for it, and finally older, we find wisdom in older, mature Christians. This, um, actually all nine chapters of the first, first beginning of, of Proverbs are lectures of a father to his son. A father to his son. On life. And the son learns by listening to age and experience and maturity. Which is hard for us in our culture, right? We live in a technological society that values youth, right? It's the young where innovation comes from. But wisdom is the opposite. The older, the better. That's why elders in Presbyterianism are literally old men. They rule the church because they are wise. You can call them uh, old men the next time you see uh, Jeff, David, or Sammy. Look for people who are wiser, more mature in faith than you are, and apprentice yourself to them. So, friends, do you prize wisdom? Do you know you need it, and are you searching for it? Are you seeking it in prayer, in scripture, and in other people? Wisdom is not passive. If you don't pursue wisdom, you will never become wise. Okay, our fourth and last point, the preservation of wisdom. The stakes in Proverbs are high. Wisdom is life and death. It is not some like add-on, like like a Greek philosopher, like I want to become wise, so I'm going to go be an intellectual. No, it is practical, real-life consequences. You you feel the, the the urgency that this father has for his son. He wants to guide his global son. And we see that he's actually demarking the the, the wrong ways to live. So in verse verse one of chapter two he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments. And then in verses twelve through fifteen, he begins to warn his son not to go the way of evil men. The wisdom will deliver you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness and walk in the ways of darkness. Elsewhere in Proverbs, these men offer quick money. They offer companionship, but but they're drunks and hedonists. They are the way of death. And then in verses 16 through 19, the father warns the way of sex, of easy sex, the adulterous. And this too is a theme in Proverbs. Sexual temptation is everywhere, and it will destroy you. It will destroy you. Even though these are two paths, the, the group of men that will mislead you and the, the, the seductress who will mislead you, they're actually the two versions of the same path, which lead to death and destruction. Look at verse 18. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. The terror of foolishness is that it is a hunter. We have an enemy that desires our destruction, that wants us to be foolish. And when we leave the path of wisdom, it we put ourselves in danger. Uh, Pam, Pam Monheimer knew the Columbia River Gorge like her backyard. She'd hiked it many times, so much that she could name every waterfall. In a one cold January day in 2014, she and a friend went hiking. And they split up and agreed to meet back in a couple hours. Pam had been listening to an audio book and lost track of time. And so when she realized she was late, she left the trail for a shortcut to her car. Within minutes, 
she was thoroughly lost in sub-freezing temperatures. And then it started raining. She was soaked. That's what happens when we go off the path of wisdom. You become disoriented, lost, confused, and vulnerable. Going off trail is lethal. Pam would have died had it not been for two things. Her cell phone and her, tra- and her training. Before her phone died, she was able to figure out her GPS coordinates and text 911 them. And even though she wanted to, tr- to leave, to, to run, to try to find her car, her training had said to stay put so that the rescuers could find her. It took everything in her not to move on and try to rescue herself. But her training prevailed. And hours after she pinged 911, a rescue squad rescued her. Wisdom saved her life. Wisdom is like her cell phone. It's a lifeline that tells you and others where you are and how to get help. I'll be the only positive metaphor I'll, I'll ever use for a cell phone. <laughs> it is wisdom that protects us. It saves us. That's what saves this young son from destruction. Look at verse 6. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. And then in verse 7, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. You get, the, you get this vision of God kind of hovering over and making sure that you stay on the path. He's watching over us. The Lord's wisdom preserves and protects our lives. It protects us from going astray. In verse 10, he continues. It says, For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. When we store and treasure wisdom in our heart, it becomes a shield, a guard. It's our mountaineering training that we that can actually save our life. A strange thing, though, happens in chapter 2, in the verses we just read. At first, it is the Lord who is guarding and watching over us. But then in verses 11 and 12, it is wisdom itself. Wisdom becomes the actor, and we the acted upon Wisdom, discretion, and understanding. They're the ones that are watching, guarding, and delivering. Wisdom has become personified. And the early church fathers saw this, and they quickly pointed out, this is pointing to Jesus Christ. The New Testament names Christ as the wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1.24. Or Paul in Colossians 2 says, In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They follow Jesus' own teaching here. Jesus references how the Queen of Sheba famously came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then Jesus says this with this, this epic mic drop. He says, something greater than Solomon is here. It's because he is the wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate. And like the law, Christ does not abolish Proverbs, but fulfills it. Proverbs is the way of wisdom, but it is meant to lead us to the way and the truth and the life. That is Jesus Christ. He is the path of life. He is the perfect son in Proverbs 
who listens to his father's word and lives the perfectly wise life. And that's good news. You see, no matter how hard we try, we will never attain to perfect wisdom. You are going to do stupid and foolish things in this life. You are. You are. And wisdom can easily collapse into this kind of works righteousness. Right? If I just live the right way, if I do things perfectly, then I'll get the results that I want. It's a legalistic way of living right. But thank God that Jesus is a better wisdom who comes to us in our foolishness and death. There's this level of Mount Everest called the death zone. Sounds like a delightful place, the death zone. It's the last 3,000 feet before the summit. And because of the lack of oxygen, your body literally starts to die. Cell by cell. Due to oxygen deprivation. And to make things worse, it's worse. Temperatures can get lower than negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Back in May, there was a man named Gil J. Sherpa who was guiding a client to the summit when he saw a climber in the death zone, all by himself, hanging onto a rope and shivering terribly. The Sherpa explained that when he came upon this man, he had quote, no energy, no oxygen, nothing. It was the epitome of foolishness. Like, where's your oxygen? You don't go up there without oxygen. He had been abandoned by his Sherpas, his guides, due to his own physical weakness, and he was ostensibly left for dead at 27,000 feet of sea level. Rescues just don't happen at this elevation. It's too dangerous. It's too foolish. But the Sherpa had compassion. He convinced his client that saving this man's life was more important than reaching the summit. And then he took all 175 pounds of this man and strapped him to his back and started to walk down Mount Everest. He got to the camp where he carried him back and a helicopter came and evacuated him. And the man survived. Friends, this is the truth about wisdom of God and Christ. It's that Christ actually became a fool for us. We are like that man, abandoned on Mount Everest in the death zone. We could not save ourselves. And yet Jesus, contrary to all the wisdom of Proverbs, is a better wisdom because he comes and he straps us on his back and carries us to safety. He doesn't just carry us to safety. Actually, he carries us up the mountain so that we can see the beauty and the vista that is God himself. Friends, that is the fear of the Lord. You can imagine that this, this man who was saved by the Sherpa would have a bit of reverence and respect for the man that saved his life, who did such a stupid thing as strap this man to his back and walk down Mount Everest. The reverence, the respect... Friends, that is our God. He calls us to fear him because he loves us so much that he became a fool for our sake to save us and give us life. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, you are strong and we are weak. You are wise and we are fools. But Lord, we pray that we would be so 
so humble in our assessment of ourselves. Lord, we ask you would give us the wisdom to see how foolish we truly are. And that you would make us wise in you. We thank you that you have saved us. Lord, you are not safe. Not by any stretch of that definition. Lord, you are good. And we see this most of all in our Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.